So we actually live in a world that is awash with stories and songs and movies and TV shows and the like that are all about love. And I suspect that we're seeing a lot more in it. I just see all the advertising for the programs on television and I just shake my head. Because, you see, so much of what we see portrayed all around us is actually not love. A lot of it's romance, a lot of it's lust, a lot of it's fantasy, a lot of it's sentimentality, selfishness, and I could go on and on and on. And so I did a little bit of moving around uh, in reputable places in the web this week. And this is what I discovered. Research shows, this is those who study words, research shows that the word love is being overused in today's society and it seems to be losing its value. So I'm not wrong when I see these things. The word love is being used at the wrong time and in the wrong context. I'll let you figure that one out. From the cradle, we see and hear so much that does not give us a true picture of love. And we know that human relationships are messed up by these less than accurate portrayals of love. Husband, wife, parent, child, friend and friend, work and neighbourhood relationships are being messed up as we practice these definitions of love around us in society. And unfortunately, from my perspective, and this is the biggie, it also messes up our God relationships, our relationship with God. And that's the biggie. The single most important reality of all existence is that God is love and that God loves the world that he's created. But when our minds and our hearts and our imaginations are crippled by these lies around us about love, we have a hard time understanding this fundamental ingredient of daily love, daily life, love in God. We really struggle. My pastoral work tells me that. Over years and years and years, people struggle to rest in the love of God. So this morning I want us to have a brief look at the first three chapters of Hosea. Hosea is the prophet of love, but not love as we imagine or fantasize it to be. His story is a parable of God's love, a lived parable. So the morning air was cool and fresh as Hosea set off to his favorite place in the nearby hills to spend some time with his God. And Hosea was feeling really discouraged. His heart was heavy. He told God yet again how the people of Israel were taking no notice of his call for them to repent, to turn away from their sins and to turn back to their God. They remained unfaithful to God. And as it had been for a while, God was silent. And Hosea started trudgily, wearily trudging back to his house when he sensed. God speaking to him. At last he's heard the prayers rising from my discouraged heart. But what are you saying, Lord? That is really bizarre. You want me, your prophet, to go and marry a whore? A prostitute? You're kidding me, aren't you, God? You're not? But I'm actually your spokesman, your prophet to the people of Israel. How's it going to look to them that I go off and marry a prostitute? 
They won't listen to me anymore. I'm a God-fearing, God-honouring man and I'm seeking to be pure. You want me, God, to share my life, my love, my home, my bed with a whore? You've got to be kidding. What about that beautiful woman down the street? She's got a heart that's seeking after you, God. We'd do really well together and you know I want to get married. All right, I'll do what you're saying then, God. So Hosea goes off and finds himself an adulterous woman for a wife. He marries Goma. He treats her with love and respect as a person of worth and dignity. He gives her friendship. It seems like Goma is responding to all of this. Sex becomes less a way of making money and more a way of expressing affection and love and of creating a family. The marriage, strange as it was, really seems to be working. They have three children. Family life's just fine. Then one day Hosea comes home to an empty house. The children are at home by themselves and Goma is nowhere to be found. A sick feeling spreads through Hosea's stomach. Somehow he just knows where she is. But he doesn't want to think about it or believe it. And then he sees a note on the kitchen table. Dear Hosea. He heads off to the red light district where he sees Goma on the street embracing another man as she leads him into a house of prostitution. Hosea's devastated. She's betrayed my love. She's been unfaithful. She's rejected me. It hurts. She left me after all that I've given of myself to her. I'm all alone and I can't bear it. Over the months and years, Hosea seems to fight off the rage within himself, that rage and that desire to get even with Goma. He doesn't know why, but he too resists the temptation to divorce her. And all the time, heaven thunders down its silence on the matter. Hosea is sitting out there in his favourite spot on his favourite rock one day to meet with God, as he did often, warming himself in the morning sun. And he senses the still small voice of God stirring in his heart again. Hosea, I want you to go and find your unfaithful wife. To love her again. To bring her back into the marriage. Oh, can't be the voice of God, says Hosea. But the words won't leave him. He wrestles with them for weeks. He tries to silence them. He puts them out of his mind. He ignores them. But it's of no use. Oh, no, you don't, God. Not this time. I'm having nothing more to do with Goma. I'm learning to cope with my broken heart, my love being stomped on, the loneliness, the rejection. No, I don't want to experience the pain of being dumped again, you know, of sharing my bride, my wife with other lovers. I want you to love Goma and take her back as your wife is persistent. Reluctantly but obediently, Hosea set off to the red light district of the town. He finds out that Goma now has a pimp. He pays the pimp to get his wife back. The same amount of money as would buy a slave. When Hosea sees Goma, 
when he is shocked at her bedraggled appearance, her tatty clothes, her knotted and dirty hair, her haggard look and the bones protruding through her skin. Goma can hardly believe her eyes that her husband has come for her. What could he possibly see in me that he would pay to have me back? And then she hears these amazing words from Hosea. I want you to come home with me again and be my wife. I want us to start all over again. Please stay away from other men. Don't give yourself to them again. I love you. What on earth is God up to? It's a true story. The prophet Hosea. Seems bizarre, doesn't it? Imagine God speaking to you now. No, I don't. This is what it says in Hosea 1 verse 2. This is what God says to Hosea. His first words to him, his newfound prophet. Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness. But here's the key. Because the land, that's the nation of Israel, is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. It's the key. It's a parable. It's a picture of God and his dealings with Israel. Hosea experienced in his relationship with Gomer in a small measure what God had been experiencing with his bride Israel over hundreds of years. The one with whom he'd made a covenant of marriage and love. And we haven't got time to chase that through the Old Testament. But he made a and he called his nation my wife. The persistent unfaithfulness of his bride, they had roving eyes and hearts. They were playing the harlot. They were being whores to their God. So against the backdrop of God's threat of judgment, which is in Hosea, if this nation does not repent, comes some of the most beautiful and poignant expressions of love that we will ever see. We'll get a good definition of love here. Hosea speaks with a deep heart feeling because his own tragic marriage brought home to him the repulsiveness of adultery. He saw with horror how unfaithfulness must appear to God coming from his own loved people, his bride. And we the hearers are all the richer for these expressions of constant love. Hosea has been called the first prophet of grace, Israel's earliest evangelist. We know Luke presents the story of the prodigal son. Hosea presents the story of the prodigal wife. Just as a bit of background, Hosea was God's mouthpiece, God's prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel for more than 50 years. The kingdom was now divided. His was a message of judgment and grace leading right up to the time when Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, was ransacked and the people of the northern kingdom Israel were taken out in 722 BC. 
And up until that time, the nation had had a lengthy time of prosperity. More buildings, expanding territory, successes in battle, growing agricultural industries. But some of the people had substituted an outward form of religion for inward reality. So they came into the temple, they celebrated the feast, they did all that stuff on the outside, but inside there was no heart for God. It was all form. Just going through the motions of their relationship with God. The rest had started serving the Baal gods around with a resultant decline in morality and ethics and growing violence and injustice. Well, speak that into our society today. They were short in, they were sh- sh- in short prostituting themselves and it was a sad and piteous state indeed. Like Gomer, they were in reality down to the level of slaves. This is what we read in Hosea chapter 2 verse 5. She, that means Israel, God's precious bride, said, I will go after other lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool, my linen, my oil and my drink. And this is God's response to that. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine and oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. She went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. What an insult. This time of prosperity in Israel was a gracious manifestation of the love of God. And it was taken by these harlots as being a benefit of the worthless Baal gods. That's how far they fell. And said, this is coming from other gods. How much lower could they go? Well, as we journey in this this morning, let us realise that we are the, the church itself is the bride of Christ and we individually are part of the bride of Christ. Can we be brave enough this morning to ask ourselves individually and corporately this question, is it just possible that we are playing the harlot? Boring, roving eyes, wandering hearts, prostituting ourselves, being unfaithful to the marriage covenant we have with God. Perhaps it's a lot more subtle than running off with other gods like Baal. It's some 15, maybe 20 years ago that Sharon and I had somehow managed to accrue some small savings for the first time in our married life. We had lived on the smell of an oily rag up until then for 30 plus years. Living from paycheck to paycheck, never any money in the bank accounts. And you know what I began to think when I saw that little bit of money there? I am now secure. And I want to tell you, it was much easier living those 30 years on the smell of an oily rag than it is now with some material gifts and goods. You've got to look after them much easier just li- I, I'm serious about that you see what I happened to me was I was beginning to misunderstand where life and prosperity and meaning came from 
I was tempted to depend on my human abilities rather than on God. I was placing more reliance on some meagre personal savings and my ability to go on accruing more and make more than on God who is my provider. I was doing just what those people did then. I was starting to see myself as the provider. How brilliant I was. Who's the provider? See how subtle it is? How subtle it is. The subtle lure of materialism and self-achievement was taking my loyalty away from God. A lot of us in today's society would do a lot better in life if we didn't think we were holding up everything in our lives. We would work less. We really, and we'd want less. That was playing the harlot like Israel from my perspective. In an embryonic way, I was serving mammon rather than Jesus. And I've had to battle that since that day. Sometimes I sit back now that I own a house and a car and a few other things and go, wow, I've made it. Look what I've given to myself. (laughs) And what's that say to God? Hmm. In our Western society, we are constantly being tempted to depend on material things, our human abilities, rather than trusting in the sovereign God of the universe. Yeah, we need to work in all those things, don't get me wrong, but where's the trust? There's another little thing going on too. We all know that in our culture now there are no absolutes. Truth is relative. There's your truth and there's my truth, and there's their truth, and somebody else's truth. Truth is relative now. You can hard If you put 20 people in a room and ask them the truth about something now, you'd get 20 different views, even including 20 different Christians, because we have lost this idea of there being an absolute truth. There are no absolutes anymore. And so we face the constant thing as believers, the bride of Christ, of bringing into our faith cultural values that don't belong there. Values and practices of the world around us. It can be so subtle. It's hard to resist all this enculturation. Take, for instance, the definition of love. This portrayed to us hour after hour day after day. It's not a biblical definition of love. How much has it grabbed us? I can remember as a youth leader uh, back, that's a few years ago, um, and we were going gangbusters in the youth group and hitting the edge of the drug scene, and the big question back there in the 70s was, my 17 and 18-year-old boys in particular who are great sportsmen coming and saying, Mum and Dad won't let me play footy on Sunday. Now, that seems antiquated now, doesn't it? But that was real for them. We had some wonderful discussions as a group around that. I had to get the parents involved because I needed to be very sensitive to their views. And we had many conversations about it. But you know what? <laughs> I still wonder today if we, the followers of Jesus, have figured out the principle of Sabbath rest yet. 
If we had, I would not hear people walking into the Christmas season daunted by the hurry and worrying about all that's going to happen. Because we would have the principle of Sabbath rest in place. I said the principle of Sabbath rest. I didn't say right off Sunday because I know many of you here work have to work on Sundays. That's not the deal. But have we got the principle of Sabbath rest in our lives or are we drinking from the culture around us with all its hurry and worry accumulating so it's safe and secure? I've been for two years now working my way through the whole issue of same-sex marriage, biblically, socially, culturally. It's been a heavy plough. And the temptations that are there to bring in to my thinking, just what I see around in the culture, press hard. Press hard. I'm probably going to be on this journey a lot longer. It's a really hard one to look at. We get the idea of how we can just sometimes just embrace something that's out there and bring it in without thinking. We may not always be aware of compromising beliefs and moral practices because each of us has an immense ability to be self-deceived. When I first started doing weddings, there was never any believers who came to me 40 years ago who were living together. Within 10 years, everyone who came to me to be married was living together. Now, you've got to figure out what all that means. We need to figure out what all that means. My take is that we, even in the church, had taken on the culture of the world around us and said, that's okay. Was God speaking through Jeremiah who said, the heart is deceitful above all things. And he was speaking to the nation of Judah which is about to go down the same path as Israel's going down when Hosea is speaking to them. The heart is deceitful above all things. So are we playing the harlot to use the language of Hosea, to use his tragic marriage? The consequences are huge. And then... I'm going to be game enough to ask the question. Have you just gone through the form this morning? I've turned up this morning because that's what I do. I turn up to Bentley Sunday mornings at half past nine or thereabouts. But the heart is somewhere else. God through... Isaiah, Isaiah speaking about a hundred years on from Hosea, now speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah, which would not repent, said this, These people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The same thing that Hosea called them on. Well, here's the really stunning 
news. While Israel, while it's playing the harlot, God says this to her in chapter 2, verse 14, Therefore I am now going to allure her. Grab the language, please. God says to his unfaithful bride, I'm now going to allure her. (laughs) I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. Or as it comes out in the message, and now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start all over again. I'm taking her back out into the wilderness where we had our first date and I'll court her. I'll give her bouquets of roses. Perhaps I should stop now and just say, we're all going to sit here for half an hour and just meditate on that for us. What does it mean that the God whose bride, unfaithful bride is whoring over here is saying to her, I'm going to come and lead you into the desert. I'm going to take you back to where we began and I'm going to court you all over afresh and new. Are you resonating with that now? That's why this is called, Hosea is called the prophet of love. This is amazing. How does that line up with our culture's definition of love? (laughs) I need a new model. So I'll get out and find me a new wife, give up the one I've got. Do you know what the real scandal is today? The real scandal is that God would get involved in a relationship with a man like me. The real shocker is that he would love me. It's the scandal of God's love. My life has been shot through with spiritual adultery. I have loved other things and other people more than God at times. Some days I've completely ignored him and other days I have accused him of not loving me. He's found me time and time again being unfaithful to him. How it must break his loving heart. The astonishing thing is that he still loves me. It's the real scandal. He's constantly wooing me. His wife of harlotry. God's love is not fully explained in this limited context of the first three chapters of Hosea, but we learn that it is not quenched by human failure and human disloyalty. It is not quenched. Verse 19 of Hosea 2, I will betroth you to me forever. He's out in the desert wooing her. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will know the Lord. You see, why had they stepped away from God in the first place? Because they didn't actually know his love fully. And I think that's what happens to us in this Western world. We just can't get a handle on this kind of love. And so we step away from it. 
try and manage life on our own. God says, I'm going to renew the marriage vows. Harlots can start over. The good news as 2019 draws to a close is not that the rush of Christmas is coming, is that God wants you and me to love him warmly as our husband. Not just serve him dutifully as our master. Yes, sir, three bags full. When we think of our failures, how little we've reflected on his world, how burdensome prayer has become, how many other things of this world have given us greater kicks than our God, he wants us to remember that his desire to have us back is not based on a naive estimation of us. He knows who we are and he wants us back fully. The point of Hosea is that God exalts his mercy, his grace, his love by not giving up on his bride, his wife of harlotry. The good news of Hosea and of the parable of the prodigal son and of the fast approaching Christmas season is that God knows we've sold ourselves for a song, yet he's wooing us into the chambers of his love. God's abundant blessings are interrupted by unfaithful actions, but his overpowering love is not quenched by some temporary rejection. Now, the message translation here is great. And for those of you who keep God at an arm's length and keep him away from your heart... He says, when you return to me, I want you not to call to say, yes, sir. Kind of like we're a slave and we say, yes, sir, tell me how high to jump and I'll jump. He wants us to respond this way. My dear husband. Is that how you respond to God? My dear husband. God wants our heart, not just our hands, because if he has our hearts, he has everything. Let me finish by reading Hosea chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 out of the message to you. So you're left with this picture of God and his love. And now, this is God speaking to his unfaithful bride. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start all over again. I'm taking her back out into the wilderness where we had our first date and I'll court her. I'll give her bouquets of roses. I'll turn Heartbreak Valley into acres of hope. She'll respond like she did as a young girl, those days when she was a fresh out of Egypt. At that time, you'll address me, dear husband. Never again will you address me as slave master. Let's pause and ponder.
Father Wedden, we read the story of Hosea and Gomer, which is a picture of your relationship with your bride Israel. We can only say thank you for your amazing love. Thank you that there's nothing we can do to stop its supply. Thank you that there's nothing we can do to make you love us more. There's nothing we can do to make you love us less. You are all pure, inexhaustible love. Thank you that you keep coming back to us and back to us so that we might call you dear husband. Father, may we have that experience this Christmas. There's so many just don't want to go through the Christmas season. Oh yeah, there's some great highlights, but it just seems to be hurry and worry. Let us be able to turn up on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and say, my dear husband. Amen. Thanks, Rose.